0: Hello and welcome to Faith Fathers and Families, where the focus of this family ministry is restoring a foundation of biblical truth and reclaiming biblical foundations for our lives. You can visit us on the web at www.faithfathersfamilies.org, where you can learn more about our ministry, send us a prayer request, or hear past recorded messages. And now, a biblical message from Joshua Hernandez, founder of Faith Fathers Families. All right. Um, thank you again. Like Steve said, uh, this on this side, there is a lot involved and it's mainly because when anytime we teach from the book, the holy book, we're in a way speaking on behalf of God and that's a pretty big deal and I don't take it lightly. And I remember the first time I put my first message together, I was letting Steve take a look at it and it was James 1.1, I believe. And and his reaction was, good night, <laughs> seven pages on one verse. But <laughs> I'm very uh, very long-winded, and I believe that I take it seriously, as I know he does too, that when we open this book, it is speaking on behalf of God. And when there is s- Scripture, the depth of Scripture, it, it we'll never get to the bottom of this side of Jesus. And, and I'm thankful for that because there's so much richly there that we can get from it. And so when I look at it, whether it's one verse or five verses, like we'll look at tonight, um, to me, I try to plunge it as much as possible and get out of it as much as possible. And sometimes that can go as long as seven pages for one verse, or sometimes it can go as 30 or 40 minutes for five. I guess we'll find out. But I do want to thank you again for letting me take this opportunity to bring the word to you. If uh, we sprung it on you and you're surprised, I thank you anyway. But um, so tonight we will be looking at Psalm 127. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 127. Um, so let's talk about desires. We generally live our life based on our desires, don't we? Now desires are not inherently bad, but if they're contrary to, to God's desires, then they can be very unholy, ungodly. Um, one of my favorite songs starts out like this. We were born to embrace, not accept it. And what they're talking about there, when you embrace something, Um, it's an act of accepting, uh, excitingly, you're joyously accepting what it is, and you're partaking in it. When you accept something, it's less active. It's more like, oh, I guess I'll go along with it. If many of you have kids or have, have had kids, you can get the difference between embrace and accept when you say, hey, clean your room. Fine, I'll do it. That's acceptance. Embracing is going up there and singing as you do it and doing it to the glory of God. So that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. So we can actively embrace God's desires for our life uh, by affirming his way is right and true, um, and ours is faulty apart from him, or we can merely accept them with a a muffled, yeah, sure, Lord, I guess so. Um, You know, never a day goes by that I'm not brought to a sadness in my heart as I look at the news, and I know this probably goes for everybody, but you see all these stories of abuse, of neglect, pain, suffering, murder, hate, um, destruction, and most recently, suicide. There's so many broken people breaking people. And I find that there's always a common denominator in these situations, and I call it the bane of our existence. And it's our insatiable desire to control every aspect of our life apart from God. See, it doesn't matter how old you are, how intelligent you are, how popular you are, how many followers you have. doesn't matter what career you secured or how much wealth you ascertained. It doesn't matter how many volunteer hours you put in at the local church. And as we're so clearly reminded, it doesn't even matter how famous you are or who you know. Our insatiable desire to control our life and everything else apart from God will ultimately lead to our destruction. Now, I don't have to say this for you guys, for us to know it's true. Any of us that reads the news scrolls our feed can feel the heavy burden of this poison now that's the reason I chose the word bane and it is kind of an archaic term but the noun actually means anything typically a poison or anything really that that uh, causes harm ruin or death and our desire apart from God it's poisoning our soul it's killing our families it's killing our churches and it's killing society the crime rate constantly increases families continue to deteriorate, churches continue, continue to crumble, men continue to go astray, wives go without godly leadership or altogether abandoned. Children end up a product of their surroundings, which usually, when left to their own devices, is largely affected by the digital sphere of influence they spend most of their life in. And what's sad about that is most times it's unchecked. So logically, we should ask, what can we do? What will remove this distress or poison that brings so much death and destruction. Now, if you ask the world, they'll tell you lots of things. They might tell you the resolution is self-help. If you just find the right book to read, as Roland mentioned last Sunday, uh, maybe um, you find your own reality. That's a a thing they like to use today. Whatever works for you, whatever's real for you. Uh, Maybe introspection is a key. If you just look deep enough inside, you can fix all the problems that you have. They might tell you, Uh, motivational uh, seminars you know just stay positive right yeah right (laughs) or they'll tell you secular meditation right I use the term secular because there is a difference just empty your mind think about nothing um, you know meditate and here's a here's a, a little tidbit of information you cannot ever think about nothing because no thing is non-existent so if you try to think about nothing you're forced to think about something So they've missed it there, too. They might say more money is the answer, right? As if money ever fixed our heart problem or our depression. Some would say to sow the wild oats or to get it out of your system. Yeah, sure, that's a good idea. Live in sin and debauchery for 10 or 15 years and see how happy you end up. It'll ruin your life. None of this reckless and irresponsible advice will solve the problem. The world can't solve a problem. It's not even willing to name, let alone confront. So how do we fix it? Or better yet, is there even a fix for it? I think there is, and I I think we can see that in Psalm 127. So with that, I'll go ahead and read if you want to follow along. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So, first thing to notice is the word vain occurs three times in this psalm three times in five verses that should tell us a little something about what we're reading here and then if you remember the word vain means producing no result or a useless result so i'm going to do things just a little bit differently i know um, you've heard steve's mention three points in a poem before where you know some guys just think that if they have three points and fancy words that everybody will get something from it but today I want to look at this psalm and and draw out four problems that I think apply to our lives and then talk about the four resolutions for those, okay? Um, So problem number one is our insatiable desire to build the house apart from God is the bane of our failure. It's the reason we fail. Our insatiable desire to build the house apart from God is the bane of our failure, and we can see this in verse uh, 1a, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So the Hebrew word that they use here is, uh, if I pronounce it correctly, bayeth, um, and it can refer to either a physical domicile or family, right? So it's either a building or family, uh, depending on the context. And therefore, unless the Lord builds the house or the family, we labor in vain. And so Lord that's used here is the capital L-O-R-D. That we know that's a self-revealing, self-existent God, or what we would call Yahweh, that's the personal God that we can know. And if we can know that, if we can know God, then naturally we can learn how to build His way. So in the beginning, we saw that God brought the man, or excuse me, the woman to the man. He didn't bring the man to the man, he didn't bring the woman to the woman, he brought the woman to the man. Presenting the bride to her husband or the husband and setting a precedent uh, for all generations regarding marriage. Quick caveat, don't have to be married to be a man or a woman according to scripture. We know that Paul would say, hey, if you can, stay single because you can devote every aspect of your body and being to God. So just wanted to mention that. But God did ordain the family unit. It was God, it was not the world, it wasn't the church, and it certainly was not society. God then told him to be fruitful and multiply. He ordained the family unit for a specific purpose, and that was to propagate his glory to perpetual generations through the raising of godly offspring. Um, James Montgomery Boyce says, the majority of Westerners live very compartmentalized lives. So we know that that means we got one thing here, one thing here, one thing here, but nothing's ever together. But the Jew would ask, why is the house being built if not for the family? Why are the watchmen protecting the city if not for the families that live in it? Just as it was then, so it is now. The family was and is the basic unit and most important element of society. The only difference is is that the ancient Jew knew it, and we generally do not. End quote. So we remember Abraham. He was told that by this time next year, Sarah would conceive and bear his son. Well, we know what happens. He has relations with Hagar, and Ishmael's born. And what we see there is Sarah and Abraham trying to build the family of promise apart from God. What does that matter, right? Well, take note of what God says about Ishmael in chapter 16, verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. It is believed that the descendants of Ishmael make up the majority of those who constantly oppose the Israelites in Abraham's day and even to this day. We can look at another family from the Old Testament. Jacob and Esau were born to Rebekah and Isaac. Now this is a family full of deceit. We read that Jacob steals the birthright from his brother Esau. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not entirely sure how good the stew was for him to do that, uh, especially since Esau would have known like his place of honor and, and, and leadership as the firstborn son in, in that time. But the scripture does tell us that he despised his birthright. So that gives us a little idea of what's going on there. And then if we remember, prior to the birth, they were struggling in Rebekah's womb, and Rebekah, concerned, uh, went to God, and God told her that there's two nations in your womb. The older will serve the younger. Okay? So we see after the stew fiasco, Jacob, at his mother's word, deceives his father Isaac for the blessing. So we again see that Rebekah tries to procure the blessing of God, Apart from God, we also know that there is parental favoritism. The Scripture says that Isaac loved uh, Esau and Rebecca loved Jacob. So after Jacob's deception and because of Esau's female rage against his brother, Jacob runs and goes to his uh, mother's family. But because of the animosity between these two siblings, Jacob and Esau, we see that the descendants of Esau, also known as Edomites, constantly fought with the Israelites. I mean, you can see a clear picture of this in Obadiah uh, as to the results of, of their behavior towards their brother Jacob. It's all over in Scripture, but in Obadiah 10 and 11, it says, Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were one of them. You see, trying to build the family apart from God is hopeless. It only leads to deceit, destruction, and desecration. You know, Maybe we're not as deceitful or destructive, but we're just as good at creating problems of our own. Um, sometimes we can sacrifice our families to the God of work and play, maybe of sports and television, societal status online or off. All of these selfish desires rooted in sin as we strive to build apart from the Lord. We should be sacrificing ourselves mentally and emotionally, physically and spiritually, for the betterment of our families. This includes our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all in the family of God, but we can't do this apart from the Lord. We have to understand that. Now, some might say, well, Josh, that might work for you, but I've got to work a job and I've got to do these other things. And I get that. I have to work a job, too. And when it comes to worrying about providing for my family, I get just as stressed as the next person. And it's not that making money is a bad thing or providing for your family. But eventually, if we get so concerned about building apart from the Lord, it starts to become our, our most uh, coveted desire, or important desire. It, it now is turned into an idol of ungodliness and un- unholiness. And some might say, well, I've got to have time to do this, or maybe I need to do a hobby, or whatever the case is. And that's fine, too. I understand that. We all need time to recoup and and, and relax. But I would just wonder that if we were all to take a moment and sit in front of a graveyard just on the bench, contemplating everything we do in our life for our family, apart from them, and I mean the church family as well, can we say that that thing, whatever it is, that thing is making an eternal impact to the glory of the Lord? Real quick to harp on parents, I know we've all been some and and maybe not, but it's our job to teach and instruct and discipline our children at home. The scriptures would teach it as primarily our job, and we're in sin against God if we're not doing it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, commands us to teach our children every chance we get. I know that's tough, especially with the full schedule. And I know some of us have estranged families, or maybe our kids are grown, or maybe we're not part of a family yet. But even so, we should be seeking ways to um, come alongside other families, other individuals in the church, and helping build them up in the Spirit. It's been said that so goes the family, so goes the church. I'm not saying that the church can't be built apart from families. However, families typically are at the center of society. And as James Boyce noted, if they're raising up godly offspring it makes sense that the church will increase and as a result society will be impacted i just wonder when the time comes and we're breathing our last what people will say what we did with the time that was given to us it's such a short amount of time and i wonder what our families and our church will look like then i've even often thought this i wonder what it's going to say on 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 the metaphorical tombstone of my life Will it say you know here lies joshua uh toiled constantly, sacrificing self for his or her family and the Lord's family. Or, gosh forbid, will it say, here lies Joshua, toiled night and day to the God of self, sacrificed his or her family and the Lord's on the altar of selfish affluence and comfort. If we want to build strong families for God, we've got to, or even help build strong families, we've got to stop capitulating to the world's hollow promises. We've got to pour ourselves out for each other for families for the church for the people in the church it can't be done without people so if you're still with me problem number two is our insatiable desire to build the church apart from God is the bane of its crumbling we talked earlier about the Hebrew word used here to reference house and how it can be a physical building or a family Um, and especially in the time of Solomon it could also refer to um, the temple of the Lord when he speaks of children in verses 3 to 5, we would say mostly that um, he's speaking about a family or a house. But in the same context, uh, in his day, he could also be uh, thinking in line with the temple of God. And we would consider that the the spiritual temple, right? That'd be you and me, the, the living stones on earth. So we should can also consider the building of the church, not just the family or, or the individual. I came across a story. I, I don't know how true it is um, but there was a lot of power in it and it kind of touched me in my heart about how I look at my service to the local church so I'm just gonna share that with you uh, real quick here and again I don't know if there's any truth behind it (laughs) so a new pastor spent the first four days making personal visits to each member of his prospective congregation inviting them to come to his inaugural services the following Sunday the church was all but empty Accordingly, the pastor placed a notice in the local newspaper stating that because the church was dead, it was everyone's duty to give it a decent Christian burial. The funeral would be held the following Sunday afternoon. Morbidly curious, a large crowd turned out for the funeral. In front of the pulpit, they saw a closed coffin, which was covered in flowers. After the pastor had delivered the eulogy, he opened the coffin and invited his congregation to come forward and pay their final respects to their dead church. Filled with curiosity as to what would represent the corpse of a dead church, all the people eagerly lined up to look into the coffin. Each mourner peeped into the coffin, then quickly turned away with a guilty sheepish look. In the coffin, tilted at the correct angle, was a large mirror. Now, church... I'm not saying Emmanuel Baptist Church is dead, but but the American Evangelical Church is dying. It's hemorrhaging, and if we don't do something to get our hearts back aligned under the headship of Jesus Christ, it will die. And I know I'm sure everybody or some people might be familiar with George Barna, runs the Barna Group. They do surveys and things like that. In his book, Future Cast, he quoted a survey they did in 2011 um, that says 7% of the American population would be considered evangelical Christian. And it, it proves uh, noteworthy here to um, talk about what an evangelical Christian is according to the, the context that he uses. And so the, an evangelical Christian, aside from believer's baptism, would say that the, iner- the scriptures are inerrant, infallible, and authoritative in all that they teach in the very word of God. Uh, They would say that Christ is the only way or we would say that Christ is the only way and the truth and the life and that nobody can come to God except through his blood on the cross by grace through faith. An evangelical Christian would say that they should attend church regularly, that they should share the gospel with unbelievers. And the last one, that there is a supernatural, omnipresent, omnipotent, all sovereign God who created all things good, who is knowable. And interacts with his creation I think I looked it up and the American population right now is like 323 million so 7% of 323 million is a lot but if you get it down to numbers you're talking about the size of the population of the state of New York and to change that we've got to get back to getting our hearts right with the Lord and letting God build the church our heart has to be burdened for God's will to be done not ours God, through Jesus' sacrifice and power of the Holy Spirit, aligns our heart and gives us new desires. But if we have those desires and do nothing with them, then it's not going to do us any good. Paul says in Philemon 1, verses 4-6, through I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I, this is the part, and I pray that your fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. He says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. And the word effective here means active, operative, and powerful. So Paul's saying all the stuff that we believe about God let it become active operative and powerful in our life without god we can't build the church if we're building it on our own desires so we have to ask ourselves are we being effectual with our faith in and knowledge of god are we loving the saints and i mean more than just wednesday and sunday are we loving the saints are we sharing the message with the sinner the life-saving message are we praying for our church and the church around the world Are we doing all those things to ensure that our desire to build the church is aligned under Christ? Problem number three, our insatiable desire to guard the city apart from God is the bane of society's epidemic. I'm getting this from verse 1b. It's um, so the whole verse, unless the Lord guards the city, uh, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So the word guard here is the same one that God used when he spoke with Adam and told him to guard or keep the garden in Genesis 2.15. And it carries with it a sense of protection, uh, monitoring, or just a general concept of keeping aware. So we would understand that the Lord doesn't physically come down and guard the city. Now that has happened in scripture, but I think Generally, when the people that make up the collective or the city were not living according to the Lord's commands, we can see in Scripture that they face constant opposition and judgment from the Lord. I think we can understand that in a similar fashion. Unless the collective of our city or society is living in accordance with God's commands, submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord cannot guard the city. And I don't mean that's entirely dependent on us. This quick caveat there, too. God can do anything. Thank him for that. I'm just saying he works through his people. So real quick, let me share with you what I mean. Um, I know this is a lot, so just bear with me, but uh, I looked at another poll, and you probably could have guessed that the stuff that I'm about to share with you was the state of society, just from reading the news and going outside. Um, but I do have a type A personality. And so with that, I also believe that something tangible, something we can hang on to, is good for us and helpful so listen carefully as I share with you the state of our city or society apart from God quote this is uh, all practices were not included in the first poll conducted in 2001 different pollster but were added as the practices became more hotly debated in the public arena hotly debated in the public arena uh, first one smoking marijuana is approved by 65% of Americans and now, indicating trends, 67% approve of homosexuality compared to 40% in 2001. 69% of premarital sex compared to 53 in 2001. And here's this one that hurts. 76% of Americans say divorce is morally acceptable compared to 59% in 2001. 65% of Americans approve of childbirth outside of marriage compared to 45% in 2002 when Gallup added the practice to its poll. And while the majority of Americans, if this can be a thankful concept, while the majority of Americans, 55%, oppose pornography, the 43% who say it's morally acceptable have increased from the 30% who approved of it in 2011 when they added that question to their poll. They also queried some Americans this year on gambling, 69% approval. Medical research using stem cells obtained from human embryos, 66%. Doctor-assisted suicide, 54%. And teen sex, 42%. Just a few things some people had to say about those results. Barrett Duke, he's a former executive of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He said this, quote, The influence of Christians has never been more needed. As our citizens are jettisoning biblical morality, we are seeing the effects of every, in every area of life, but especially on our families and our churches are struggling to keep up with the brokenness. The country has never been so rudderless. The challenges have never been greater and here it is church. The church has never been needed more. Without revival in our churches that spreads out into our communities, we can expect to see more acceptance of destructive values and lifestyles among our own members and in our own communities. Christian speaker, writer, and professor Rhonda Kelly, she's the managing editor of the Study Bible for Women, says this, quote, Our American culture has lost its moral and ethical roots. We didn't need her to tell us that, but We are no longer a Judeo-Christian country. Unfortunately, many Christians are becoming more like the world than previous generations of Christians who were set apart by their godly lifestyles. In order for Christians to influence the world with the gospel, our lives must be different in all ways from those around us. A renewed commitment to biblical marriage and godly living is needed by Christians. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives can we make a difference in the world filled with people without moral compasses. And real quick, I want another caveat. I'm not saying it's our job as a church to go out and yell and scream about these societal issues because everything must revolve around a biblical worldview. If we're going out and, and calling foul against these collective celebrated sins, it needs to be from a biblical worldview that says it's wrong because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can legislate morality by law, but we can't legislate a human heart. That's God's job. And we will never change anything screaming across party lines. Nothing. We can't impact society to the glory of God apart from him. Christians need to speak up, speak out, stand up, and stand out on this celebrated collective sin that's going on in our nation. From a biblical worldview, because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the only thing that can change the desires of our heart. The more individuals and families align themselves under God and propagate his glory, the better society is. The further away from God we get, the worse off we are, but we know that inherently. And I know if you're like me, you're thinking, wait a minute, this sounds like a lot of work. And it is, I'm not going to lie. In, in Matthew chapter 9, 37-38, here's what Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. It does require us, the Christians, the church, to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to the lost. It even requires us to go out into the world and speak against sin. I remember um, when I (laughs) I thought I was saved, I used to treat the Christian life like a waiting room, anxiously reading the magazines, waiting for the good doctor to come get me. And I've learned that we should be treating the Christian life like a battlefield, charging forward clad in the armor of God, heeding the call of our King. To go out into all the world, build families, individuals, make disciples, and impact society with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We covered it involves work. I know that it involves a lot of work, but we can look back down. At, uh, let's look back down at verse two and see what God says about the work we do. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. To eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in a sleep. You see, it doesn't matter what work we do. In other parts of the scripture, it says, do all you do to the glory of God. Everything we do, if it's apart from God, it's vanity, it's useless, and it produces no result. If everything we do, whether it's with our families, whether it's with our own life, whether it's with individuals, the church, society, our job that we go to every day, if it's under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, God will be faithful and increase the work. He says that. He will give us increase even in our sleep, meaning that we can go to bed at night and rest our head on the pillow, safely knowing that if our day was under the Lord Jesus Christ and to his glory, that the work we did will not be decayed by moth and rust. He will give the increase and he will keep it until the day. We can't control society. We know that, but we can change it. Of course, the only way is to start at home in our heart under the headship of Christ. And then that change overflows into the church, right? Because the church is made up of people. If we're not doing it right at home, we're not gonna do it right at church. And if we're not doing it right at church, we can't do it right in society or impact society. Thank you for being so gracious. Last problem and then I'll step away. Um, This one's a big one. Our insatiable desire to raise posterity, that is, the children, apart from God is the bane of a broken generation, not far from the brink of godless destruction. I know that was a mouthful, and I intended actually to print a worksheet for everybody just because (laughs) I'm long-winded. Um, but I couldn't figure out how to get it to work. So I apologize, but if you are seriously want that information afterwards, just let me know. Um, So that was a big mouthful, but in verses 3 through 5, Solomon tells us, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. An inheritance is something you treasure and cherish. In James chapter 1:17, he says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variations of shifting shadow. If God, where there is no variation and nothing but light and goodness, say that children are a gift from the Lord, we should cherish them. And I'm going to get to it for a moment, irrespective of if there are children or not. Um, we don't need to get into the semantics either of uh, biological or adopted because God makes no distinction. In some context, the ancient Jew made no distinction, and we shouldn't make no distinction. Even if you don't have any children, we should consider those in the church our children because it is all of our job as a family of a body of believers to come alongside and to grow the next generation. And that can be just somebody younger in the faith than you. I mean, both paul and peter refer to their sons in the faith somebody that they were discipling and building up that should be taking place whether it's a seasoned member with a younger member or um, with children children are from god and they are to be raised to his glory so that they rightly fear and adore him and then if so these children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior so two things i notice about arrows especially in ancient battle times First, and this is obvious, they could clearly go farther than a sword. <laughs> with the tension of the bow, they shoot forth with uh, a lot of power. So this is a big advantage over an army who mainly only had sword-wielding soldiers. So if, if we bring up children or even other individuals that were are discipling in the fear and adoration of the Lord, chances are that they're going to go further than us and have more fervor than us. Not because we didn't do it right or we weren't good enough, but because we've been there We could show them, we could teach them and train them by power of the Holy Spirit, and that will help them grow and avoid a lot of those mistakes we made. I talk to my kids about this all the time. I mean, my past is bad and checkered, and I plead with them. Don't make those mistakes because they will harm you. They will harm your life, and they will affect your relationships every day for the rest of your life. It's like more than likely like when we got our first job we generally had to be trained by somebody, and usually that person was somebody that was reliable that had been there a while, right? So they teach you all the caveats of the work. Um, they teach you what pitfalls to avoid. It's the same with, with discipling folks that are younger than you in the faith and raising children. You, you know you've been there, so you can train them lead them and guide them in a loving manner by power of the Holy Spirit. And then second... Um, thing to notice about arrows is their rapid-fire ammunition. Especially if you've seen Lord of the Rings, that guy, he cranks them out. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's computer animation, but anyway. Uh, so rightly so, how blessed is the individual whose quiver is full of them? And I think what's going on here is that you and I individually can only do so much. I can only do so much. But if, if we're raising our, our next generation to fear and love and serve the Lord, We're sending out 10 times what we could ever do into a society that desperately needs God. So I think that as arrows go farther with more fervor, with more power, we're sending out more rapidly. We know in the ancient world that a large family was ideal um, because there's generally a farm to work or a business to tend to and lots of other things that uh, required constant upkeep. In our day, technological advances have all but eliminated a lot of that stuff. So most everything that was at one time done manually is done by technology. So larger families are not really a coveted thing nowadays, especially if you live in like an urban area, but they're still the building block of a healthy, thriving society. But in our time, our family is being, or the family unit rather is being redefined and it's destroying, the church is destroying society. Not long ago, evening family dinners were the norm, but in the 21st century, become the exception. In 1997, of course, that's a long time ago. Uh, 37% of families ate dinner together seven days a week. I know we're busy. I know we got schedules to keep. In 2003, 28%. One study found that teens who have dinner with their families two nights a week or less are twice as likely to take drugs, more likely to be high stress, more likely to say they're often bored, and less likely. To perform well in school than teens who eat with their families five to seven times a week are there exceptions of course and i think the presupposition on that argument there what they're assuming there with that study is that when families come together at the table or even the church family comes together at the table or each each other's family each other's houses that is a time of growing in intimacy loving on each other and sharing each other's burdens and, and problems and heartaches and i think that tends to relieve stress not only off of kids, but off off of us adults too. I mean, I think we could all agree that just talking to another brother or sister in the faith and being able to talk about our problems and heartaches is really edifying for us, and it builds us up. I mean, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I think that 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 study would presuppose or, or assume that's the case with the information they're giving there. Last thing here, we consider that just three years ago, the majority of people surveyed Ranked family as being more central to their identity than any other factor. Family was more central to their identity than politics, believe it or not, career, and money. More than anything, family was who they were. But even that's continuing to deteriorate. We know the abortion industry takes upwards of one million babies a year, and the redefinition of the family, we are seeing the family unit crumble, crumble, crumble. Let's consider a recent headline that propagated on Father's Day, and it propagated on Father's Day for a reason. Here's the title. He gave birth, he breastfed, now he wants his son to see him as a man. That's a real article about a real person with a real child, and that's the society we're living in, and that's the generation that's being raised up. desperately needs the gospel, and it desperately needs people to go out and share and to love and to um, reach out. Not only that, but in addition to that, I fear we're spending too much time engaging in things that dissuade our children from following God. Or we allow them to engage in things that hold no eternal value? I ask myself this every day. Am I raising kids that this verse speaks about? Am I raising arrows? Or am I raising a kid that spends more time in front of the screen or at the ball field than in the Word of God? And don't get me wrong. I know <laughs> I was thinking about this. I've gone over this many times, and I think, oh goodness, what's going to happen? But I get it. Kids like to play sports. They like to play games and play on the computer. I did when I was a kid. I think I turned out okay. My, my kids love to do it, and I know a lot of kids that love to do it. I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing, but if we're allowing their time to primarily be consumed by these things, we're not only putting stumbling blocks in their way, but we're emptying the quiver and the church of the next generation. Kids are inundated with homosexuality, Transgender, illicit sexual material, and they're encouraged, encouraged to participate in the same. In public schools, as low as elementary. This is the society and the generation that's being raised apart from God and apart from the church. They're encouraged to participate in ridiculous online challenges that threaten their life. And I've seen a lot of people in the news go to the doctor in emergencies because of the things they're doing. So I just want to ask are we supporting our children even if we don't have children are we supporting other children are we coming alongside those families whether it's single mom single dad and loving on him and loving on them and saying hey I'm gonna help you build this to the glory of God because I know it's the right thing to do according to the scriptures again I have to ask myself this am I training my children sending them out as a light in the dark and encouraging them to evangelize more than just by word am I actually giving them an example to follow Or am I spending more time yelling at the coach and challenging the umpire or referee? Again, I'm not saying playing games and sports is inherently bad, church, but if it takes precedence over God-centered worship in church and at home, it becomes an idol, and that idol turns into a desire that is unholy. We must bring our children up in the fear and adoration of the Lord, not the loving worship and servitude of the world. I'm not we have to ask, are we raising a generation of arrows for the battlefield? Or raising worldly boys and girls for the ball field. All right. Again, thank you for hanging with me. I know that was a heavy sermon, especially for Wednesday evening. Um, Just, I've been really burdened in my heart. Christians, we have to understand the world, society, and the church and families crumbling around us, and we're sitting idly by, watching it happen. And this, I have to preach to myself: if we have a desire to see God and work, then we have to, or excuse me, see God work and move then we have to work and move. I have to work and move. All right, real quick, we're going to talk about the problems, and then we'll be done. And number one, family worship. Whether it's an individual or a family, this has to happen, and it has to happen at home. The church cannot reverse the effects of the world in two measly hours a week. We have to encourage and exhort families and individuals to do this and help train them if necessary. We have to come alongside them and help them out. And we as a church have to hold each other accountable. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 commands this. It's not really up for discussion if we truly believe the word of God. Two, the church has to mobilize. As a church, we have to get out of our comfort zone and reach the lost. We have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. If we don't understand the first part, all authority is given to Jesus. We'll never execute the second part. Number three, individual accountability. Church, we have to be a people that pray, worship, read, and study more than twice a week. And this has been a big deal in my own life. I've had to constantly preach this to myself. We have to consciously make time for God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with silly, irreverent myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. It's like exercise or whatever it is that you want to get good at, whether it's drawing, reading, writing, programming. Whatever it is, if you don't practice, you make no progress. How can we grow in godliness if we're not doing these things? Last one. We've got to sanctify Christ. We have to get back to our first love, Jesus Christ. If Christ is not supreme in our life, we'll fail every time. We can't live a life wholly submitted to him apart from him. That's impossible. No matter what we do apart from God, nothing will ultimately matter in the scope of eternity. Our insatiable desire to build the family, the church, and impact society, and raise the next generation apart from the Lord is useless and vanity, and we're going to fail every time unless we're truly submitted to a holy God who, we have to understand, is responsible for the increase so long as we're faithful. All right, let's pray. God, um, Lord, I pray that you would give us all wisdom and discernment to know your will, Lord, and that you would give us a heart, compassionate for growing and Uh, obedience to you. Lord, we pray that you would motivate us and mobilize us uh, collectively to love each other, to help build each other up, to help disciple each other, to help build the families, Lord, so that we can go out as a church into our communities and impact society with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters, the only thing that will change our heart's desire to be in line with you, Lord, thank you again for giving me this wonderful opportunity and for these um, faithful members. I thank you so much for each one of them and the love and kindness that they show to me each and every day. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to be with us the rest of this evening, that we'd bring you glory and honor in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.